Our study is Luke chapter 9, verses 57 to 62. Luke 9, 57 to 62. Here we will read uh, three disciples, three disciples and, or individuals who approach Christ with some statements that they make, and Jesus responds to them. And it will be good for us not only to read Luke 9, but also the parallel in Matthew chapter 8. So first, Luke 9, 57. And as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes, and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he said to another, Follow me. But he said, Permit me first to go and bury my father. But he said to him, Allow the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. And now the parallel, the parallel from Matthew 8, 18, 8, 18 to 22. Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. And a certain scribe came and said to him, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, permit me first to go and bury my father. But Jesus said to him, Follow me and allow the dead to bury their own dead. We see in Luke and in the Gospels generally that Jesus has a tendency to push back on the multitudes. Jesus has a tendency to always challenge the crowds. He's not uh, enamored by the crowds. He's not flattered by them. And he doesn't want their praise. He doesn't want anything from them. He wants them to understand the truth. So whenever the crowds come, he doesn't let the presence of a multitude of people blind his eyes to the fact that they need to believe in the truth. And this is why he constantly is addressing them in this way. It's not good and it's not right to assume that because a crowd is present, therefore good is happening in the midst of it. It's not good to assume that. We have to see what's going on and understand clearly what the circumstances are and why the crowd is gathered. If the crowd is gathered for a right reason, then good. But if not for a right reason, then it's bad and evil, and we also have to resist it. We shouldn't just follow the crowd. Well, in these three examples in Luke chapter 9, we have three individuals who approach Christ from the crowd. It is from the crowd, as we read in Matthew 8, 18. It says, Now when Jesus saw a crowd around him, when he saw a crowd around him, he gave orders to depart to the other side. So he saw a crowd and he wanted to leave the crowd. But there are three individuals who are also in the crowd called disciples, according to Matthew. Notice it says in Matthew 8, 
21, and another of the disciples. You see, because the people were following Christ, they were generally called disciples. Not the 12 disciples, not true disciples necessarily, but just disciples. We would say that, that there is a, a, a kind of student who, for a teacher or a professor, who understands what the professor is saying, is saying, agrees with it, is a good student, so he is a student, but all the other ones in the classroom are also students. But in this case, Jesus, when he's approached by these disciples, we have to understand that just because the Bible calls them disciples, or even believers, or church, or Christian, or whatever the Bible calls them, it doesn't necessarily mean they are that in the true sense. They are not necessarily that in the true sense. This is a clear example of it. And one more point to make before we go into Luke 9. And this is also gathered from Matthew. Matthew 8, 19, it says, A certain scribe came and said to him. A certain scribe. The scribes were educated in the law of Moses, in the, all of the Old Testament for that matter. And they were not only responsible for knowing it, but for transcribing it and doing so accurately. And because they were putting their hands to the text of the scriptures constantly, they became very familiar with it and became logical candidates to be teachers. Today, the equivalent would be professors of the Bible, Bible translators, people like that, that you would naturally go to to ask the question, what does the Bible say? What does the Bible teach? And in this case, this scribe has not really considered the cost of following Jesus. So he says, teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. He blurts out this statement, this empty profession, and Jesus rebukes him or rebuts it by saying, the foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. <coughs> and he's saying this again to a scribe, to uh, an academic type of person. And this is necessary because it's easy for people who are in academia to want a comfortable life. They don't want opposition. They don't want anybody to, to demote them. They don't want anybody to consider them um, ignorant. They love flattery. They love to pat each other on the back. One colleague will pat another colleague on the, on the back. And they don't want any kind of hardship in their life. This is what goes on across the, the United States. In seminaries, Christian seminaries, in universities, wherever, this is what goes on. It goes on all the time. Jesus confronts that. He confronts the empty commitment. So let's see now. Verse 57, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, and we know from Matthew that this was a scribe. Someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. He makes a statement that's a good statement. And for that matter, all of the statements made here by these three disciples, these three followers, are all in, in and of themselves good statements. And so some, uh, someone may be perplexed. Why is it that they make a good statement and yet Jesus rebuffs it? Why is it that they make a good statement 
And yet it seems as though Jesus doesn't take it as good. Well, because they didn't mean it in a sincere way. Though the passage doesn't tell us that they were insincere, though the passage does not say anything like that, we have to assume that because in and of themselves, these are good statements to make. In and of themselves, they are good statements to make. And the clearest example of this perhaps would be in verse 59. Permit me first to go and bury my father. Right there, are we not supposed to honor father and mother according to one of the Ten Commandments? Yes. Are we, uh, don't we have an example of even Jesus honoring his own mother? When he was on the cross in, in John chapter 19, he sees John the disciple right there, one of the 12 apostles there, and his mother there near the cross, and he calls on John to take care of his mother, saying, behold your mother. Looking at John and saying, behold your mother, to have John the apostle adopt Mary, the mother of Jesus, and care for her when Jesus dies. So it's good to do those things. There's no doubt about that. So uh, burying one's father would be a good thing to do. But the fact that Jesus confronts these statements shows that there was something wrong with the motive. And that is, they use these statements that are good sounding as a covering for evil. That's the issue. They use these good statements, these good assertions, these good desires in a normal situation. They use them to cover up their evil. They wanted to practice sin. They wanted to make an excuse for sin. And Jesus knows that. So he says these things to rebuff each of these statements. That's really what's happening here. Now, we have to conclude the way I just did. Because otherwise, if they made these good statements and they were sincere and had good motives with these statements, and Jesus answers it in this way, then Jesus would have been unkind, harsh. He would have been one that was um, not understanding the, the people and their desires, their needs. And if so, he would have been a sinner. But we know Jesus never sinned. Everything he did was perfect. I have to say that because there are commentators and preachers, when they come to this passage, they stumble and fumble in trying to preach this passage because they don't want Jesus to be this harsh to people. They don't want Jesus to ever talk like this to anybody. And they themselves don't ever want to talk like this to anybody. They never want to put a challenge out there so that people, if they're going to follow Christ, will follow him for true reasons, for the right reason. But we can't do that. Jesus is correct here. Jesus is sinless here. He's perfect. And whenever we come across a sugar-coated statement, whenever we come across pretentious people who say things that sound good but aren't really good, and you know there's underlying evil motives or underlying desires to practice sin, then we also should confront it, just like Jesus confronted it. So, now, the first one. I will follow you wherever you go. Isn't this what we should do? We should do this, right? If Jesus tells us to go somewhere and to do something, we should do it, whether it's nearby or across the world. If Jesus tells us to do it, we ought to do it. 
no ifs, ands, or buts. Once we are convinced of that, we should be resolved to do it. So that in itself is a good statement. However, Jesus knew that this scribe did not want to leave his comfortable surroundings. He knew that. That's why Jesus' answer is 58. And Jesus said to him, The foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. As Jesus went around as an itinerant preacher, and as he depended on his own closer disciples to have money and to support the ministry of all the people following him, uh, as we read in Luke chapter 8, Luke chapter 8, 1 to 3, it says that there were several other of the disciples in addition to the 12, and it says, and many others who were contributing to their support out of their private means so that these, this band of disciples could go place to place. That's the way Jesus did his ministry. He did not have a permanent home. He did temporarily have a permanent home in uh, Capernaum during his ministry there, but when he was in Samaria, when he was in Judea, no. He was going from place to place. And so, are we willing? Or was the scribe willing? He wasn't willing. Jesus knew that. That's why the thing that the scribe was clinging on to the most, Jesus attacks that head on. Jesus knew that scribe didn't really mean what he said. He knew it. So that's why he said, the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. God has provided for the foxes. God has pro provided for the birds. But God the Father did not provide for the Son of Man because he, was teach he, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, Hebrews 5.8. And if Jesus learned obedience from the things which he suffered, we too will be the same way. How is it possible that our Master is suffering our master is doing this or that ministry, and yet we don't do it? How could that be the case? Jesus said in Matthew 10, 24, A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple that he become as his teacher, and the slave as his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebul, how much more the members of his household? If they ridiculed Christ and even blasphemed Christ by calling him Beelzebul, that is, the devil, if they called him the devil, won't they call us devils and do so even more? Calling us fanatics, calling us weirdos, and everything else, won't they do that? Of course they will. We're not above our master Christ and, and our teacher Christ. We're not like that. So if Jesus did not have a place, it should not surprise us that we as believers will not have a place or that we'll have to roam from place to place. Not in a huge mansion. Verse 59. The second example, and he said to another, or as Matthew says, another of the disciples, follow me. Notice here, Jesus started this conversation. In the first example, the disciple, the scribe, started the conversation. I will follow you wherever you go. In this case, Jesus starts it, and he says, follow me. Here we have Jesus. Whenever the situation 
required it, he spoke up. To, today we have very popularly people saying, well, I'm going to pray about it. I'm not going to say anything. And that sugarcoating of spirituality is really an excuse to stay out of conflict, to stay out of trouble, to stay out of confrontation of somebody else's sin. That's what people say. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to wait for the Holy Spirit to lead me. Of course we, we need to pray, and of course we need the Holy Spirit to lead us, but let's not use that as a covering for evil, for a, 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 as a covering to keep quiet. Jesus here, in this case, he spoke up. He knew there was something wrong with this one man. So he says, follow, follow me, to bring out of him some statement. And the statement is, but he said, permit me first to go and bury my father. Permit me first to go and bury my father. That's a very good statement. My father just died. Permit me first to go and bury my father. I need to go bury him. All sons need to bury their father. It's a good thing to do. It's a, of common decency to do that. If not Christian ethic to do it, it's at least common decency to go bury your father. There's nothing wrong with this. And he says, permit me first to go do that. I, I'll do that first. The implication is what? After I do that first, then I'll come follow you. But Jesus knew he, he didn't really mean it. He knew that once, I, that once that man goes and buries his father, he's going to stay over there, and he's not going to come back to Jesus. He knew that. That's why Jesus said in verse 60, but he said to him, allow the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim everywhere the kingdom of God. So, Jesus uh, increases the intensity of this dialogue by saying, allow the dead to bury their own dead. You know those people all around your father? They are dead people. That is, they are spiritually dead. They are physically alive, but they are spiritually dead people. Let them take care of it. Let them do it. And once you let them do it, you go everywhere to proclaim the kingdom of God. If you really mean that, if you really mean that you are going to come and follow me, why don't you do that now? Why don't you do that now? I know you don't mean it, and I know you right now you're not going to go do it. So he challenges him in this way. This also is further evidence. You know how some people like to say, that Paul's theology was different from Jesus' theology and Jesus' theology and Paul's theology. They were different from Peter's and Peter's different from John's and John's was different from Matthew. Matthew's different from Luke and Luke different from Isaiah and Moses and it goes on and on. If you haven't heard that before, it is out there. There are people in one way or another, scholars and, and laymen, who are both say in many cases that the theology of these people are different because they don't believe the whole Bible is written by the Holy Spirit. They don't believe it's the Word of God. So they say it's different theology. But notice here, allow the dead to bury their own dead. Allow the spiritually dead to bury their own physically dead. Isn't that what Paul the Apostle said in Ephesians 2.1? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins? You were dead in your trespasses and sins? Or how could it be that, that God 
says through Moses and Ezekiel in Leviticus 18.5, for example, do this and you will live. Do this and you will live assumes that the people are dead and need life. Even Moses assumed that people were spiritually dead and needed life. So he's teaching that people are spiritually dead. Jesus is teaching people are spiritually dead, and so is Paul. We can go on and on with many other examples. The whole Bible teaches the same thing. People are spiritually dead, and so let the spiritually dead handle the physically dead. Just leave them alone. They don't want anything to do with the kingdom of God. But if you say you want something to do with the kingdom of God, then why don't you separate from them and go preach the kingdom of God to people who will listen? This reminds us of our basic duty. Matthew 4, 19. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Verse 61, our third example. And another also said, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. But Jesus said to him, No one, after putting his hand to the plow and looking back, is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, in this one, this man, he speaks up first, and he says, I will follow you, Lord, perhaps because he heard the previous two say, I will follow, and Jesus in verse 59, follow me. So now here he says, I will follow you, Lord. I saw that those people, they didn't live up to it, but I'm going to prove myself as better than them in front of this crowd, in front of Jesus. I'm going to do this. So he says, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. He should have just stopped with the first part of his statement. But when he said, first permit me to say goodbye to those at home, Jesus knew. His heart came out and exposed. That's what the, the previous disciple said that he wanted to first go to bury his father. Now here he's saying, I will follow you, Lord, but first permit me to say goodbye to those at home. He's going to say goodbye to those at home because he wants somebody at home to convince him that it's wrong to follow Jesus. And if he can have somebody convince him, somebody hold him down, somebody tie his, uh, his feet and tie his hands and keep him at home, then he can say, they did it. I wanted to follow you, but they prevented me from following you. We know that in and of itself, it's not wrong to say goodbye to those at home. In 1 Kings chapter 19, Elisha, when he was anointed by Elijah, before Elisha actually followed Elijah from place to place, he requested the same thing. He said, let me go home and say goodbye to them. And Elijah allowed him to do it. He had no problem with it. Why? Because Elijah knew Elisha's request was a genuine request. It, it was not pretentious. It was not trying to cover up and make an excuse. He knew it was genuine, so Elijah allowed Elisha to go do that. Go say goodbye. Now we'll go after that. But in this case, Jesus knew this was disingenuous. Verse 62, but Jesus said to him, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. Perhaps in this case, this is the clearest of the three that 
from Jesus' response, we have this implication that he knew that the statement was a dishonest statement. Because he says, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back. This man was looking back. And he was looking back longingly. He was looking back in that way. You may recall that there was someone else who looked back. Who looked back and became a pillar of salt? Lot's wife. Yes, Genesis 19.17 and Genesis 19. 26, 1917 and 1926, by verse 26, she becomes a pillar of salt. In fact, Luke reiterates this point from Luke 17, Luke 17 and verse 28, Luke 17, 28, it was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planting, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. On that day, let not the one who is on the housetop and whose goods are in the house go down to take them away. And likewise, let not the one who is in the field turn back. Remember Lot's wife. This is Jesus speaking, Luke recording it. Jesus says, remember Lot's wife. He says, don't turn back. Don't go down. Don't be distracted. Because when you are distracted, it shows you long for the world. You long for the life that you don't want to leave behind. Don't do that. Because you will be exposed. You will expose yourself. Lot's wife turned back because she longed for Sodom. She didn't want to leave Sodom, that wicked place. She longed for it, so she became a pillar of salt. And Jesus says that between now and the time he returns, that many people will be this way. Many people will be longingly looking back and wanting their old life. But don't be like Lot's wife. Remember what happened to her. So those who do look back, Jesus says, no one... After putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. We should not look back. And if we do look back, we will be destroyed. We will be destroyed. A couple of examples of this. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Verse 38, Hebrews 10, 38. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Those who shrink back do not have faith, they don't have true faith. And when they do shrink back, they shrink back to destruction. And God has no pleasure in people like that. No pleasure. In fact, His wrath is poured out on them. Another example is 1 John. 
1 John 2.28. 1 John 2.28. And now, little children, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. Not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Those who shrink back will not have the favor of Christ when Christ returns. Remember Lot's wife. And if we want to be fit for the kingdom of God, be fully committed to the kingdom of God. Look ahead and don't look back. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.